delightful to be with you uh, here this morning. I bring you warm greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I do want to say I step into this pulpit with some fear and trepidation, knowing that your senior minister is a ninth-degree black belt. Uh, I will make sure to behave myself uh, this morning, and I hope you will give him a good report. Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, I have, as you're turning there, I want to mention that uh, over the last really 18 months, I uh, have been sharing with uh, ministers and fellow believers that uh, if ever the church needed to hear preaching from the book of Daniel, uh, it is in our own day. Uh, a day when there is uh, pressure from uh, the culture, uh, from the government, uh, challenging us. Uh, and uh, testing our faith. And Daniel is a book uh, that reminds us that while living as exiles in a foreign land on our way to, way to glory, we are called to be courageous and to stand firm in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 3 is one of those uh, well-known, uh, even if not always well-understood, chapters of, of the Bible. And I hope uh, that we'll be encouraged together this morning. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they... So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed these men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like, this, like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that's, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your sovereign grace in our lives through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. We come into your presence now as your blood-bought children, longing to hear your voice in Scripture to be encouraged and challenged and rebuked and corrected and comforted by the precious truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us 
the courage of holy conviction, that you would raise up a new generation of men and women and boys and girls that will stand firm in the gospel and will trust in you in every circumstance and with every test that we would give you the glory and be willing to give all if necessary for the glory of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson were two courageous Christians who lived in Wigtown, Scotland in the 1680s. This decade was an especially turbulent one in Scotland in this time in their history. It was turbulent for those who were known as Scottish Puritans or Covenanters. You see, King Charles II, who came back to the throne in 1660, uh, harshly persecuted those who would not conform to the bishops and to the laws of worship in the state church. Uh, the two Margarets, one elderly and one a mere 18 years of age, refused to conform to the king's edicts. Eventually they were arrested and they were sentenced to a cruel death by drowning. It is recorded that after being imprisoned for a month, the two Margarets were led by the soldiers down to the river Bladnoch, where the tide would roll in from Wigtown Bay. Two wooden stakes were driven into the ground and these ladies were fastened to them. The plan was that the tide would come in slowly and would drown them and perhaps even get a recantation out of them. The older Margaret was placed farther out into the bay so as to give uh, the younger Margaret an opportunity to recant, but it didn't work. As the older Margaret was being swallowed up by the cold waves of Bladnoch, the soldiers asked the young Margaret, what do you think of her now? She responded, think I see Christ wrestling there. You think we are sufferers? It is Christ in us. After singing portions of Psalm 25, she began to quote that memorable passage at the end of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As the waves began to roll over the young Margaret, soldiers would pull her out of the water. And they told her that she had one more chance to conform, one more opportunity to recant. Her neighbors and her friends who were there, present, watching this situation, begged her to save her life and to recant. But she refused. Quote, no, no sinful oaths for me, she said. The dragoons then watched her die, and she drowned a witness and martyr for Christ. 
These two Margarets are buried uh, today in the old Wigtown Kirkyard, a short distance from where they died. While visiting their graves many years ago, I was deeply moved by their sacrifice. This morning, we are going to learn about three more believers who refused to obey the king's unrighteous decree and who, like the two Margarets, valued the glory of God and biblical worship above their very lives. As we dive into chapter 3 this morning, I want us all to ask ourselves, as I abide in faith, as I abide in Christ by faith, where has the Lord called me to be courageous in this present hour? Where is he asking me to stand where others are bowing to the idols of this culture? And oh, how the idols of our culture have emerged from their inconspicuous lairs. Our story picks up rather abruptly in verse 1 with a towering image of gold. In verses 1 through 3, look there with me in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. We don't know how much time exactly passed from the dramatic events that took place in chapter 2 and the construction of this massive image of gold, but it must have been at least a couple of years because of the, uh, the massive nature of this structure. The statue couldn't have been built overnight. We are told that the golden image was 90 feet high. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That's like a nine-story building. If you can imagine how large this statue was. We're not given a detailed description of the statue. Many believe that it was a representation of Nabu, a Babylonian deity from which King Nebuchadnezzar got his name. Why did he build it? Why did Nebuchadnezzar build this monstrosity? Well, first of all, it wasn't all that unusual for powerful kings to champion the building of religious buildings and statues. Religion, even of the polytheistic kind, brought people together and often cemented political power. But in this case, there is likely something deeper going on that moves the king to construct this great image. You may remember in chapter 2 that when Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the great image in the dream was made of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. The head made of gold represented King Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. The other metals represented kingdoms that would later conquer and rule over Babylon. Could it be that Nebuchadnezzar, moved by superstition and fear and pride, could it be moved by these things, built a great statue of gold to represent the Babylonian deity Nabu, as well as to represent himself and his kingdom, all for the purpose of counteracting the future effects of Daniel's dream, of his dream that Daniel interpreted, rather. It would not be the first time a king or political ruler used religion and uh, an image of himself to solidify political power and to bring the masses under his subjection, to make them pay homage to his dominion. I remember back in 1993, uh, uh, in my senior year of college, I went on my, my first mission trip and uh, went over to Moscow, Russia. And if you know your history, the walls had come down uh, not 
uh, long before 1993, and, and so the people were hungry for the gospel in Russia, and uh, we were allowed, our, our team of missionaries were allowed in all kinds of public uh, places to preach the gospel. We went into public schools, we went into cancer hospitals, uh, uh, we had uh, large events uh, outside, and then we also went into a military installation. And I'll never forget preaching the gospel to Russian soldiers who were wiping tears from their eyes as the gospel was being preached, and behind them was a large mural with Stalin and Lenin on it. It's what these leaders do. They place images of themselves all over in order to project strength and power. Nebuchadnezzar's mammoth golden image, built in the plain of Dura, was constructed primarily for the sake of the one who made it that somehow this image will strengthen his kingdom and help prevent it from being conquered. We know that this statue was all about Nebuchadnezzar because the narrator in this story mentions that Nebuchadnezzar built it nine times. Nine times he, he mentions that Nebuchadnezzar made the image. And isn't this meant to be a powerful reminder of the foolishness of idol worship? Worshiping things anything made by human hands. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you and to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatsoever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, what folly it is to give our hearts and our affections to man-made creations whether idols made for religious purposes or worldly possessions of any kind. To trust in them is to become like them, senseless and perishing. Nebuchadnezzar made a great image, but of course he was not content to let people worship that image according to their own volition, freedom. No, he would give a royal decree to all the Babylonian officials representing many nations and languages, and they would come to worship this golden image, to pay homage to the statue, and thus pay homage to the king who made it. And then we come to this royal decree, this royal decree. All chief officials of the kingdom of Babylon were commanded by royal decree to attend the dedication. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unite the kingdom by bringing together Babylonian officials from all peoples and nations and tongues to worship the image, an image likely representing, again, the god of Nebu and of himself. And this was quite an occasion. All the VIPs were present. This was the Babylonian... Hollywood red carpet affair. They were all coming, all the great men and women of the land, the most educated, the most gifted, the most 
wealthy and powerful men of the kingdom, there they were assembled together. And there was also a great orchestra there to inspire the worship of the great image. Who wouldn't fully take part in this service? The statue was so beautiful. The music so lovely, the occasion so grand, the guest list so exclusive. Not to mention the fact that those who refused to participate would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Do you get the picture here? All the important people, all the power of the land, the greatness of the structure, the beautiful music. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this sound familiar to you? The pressure to worship the idol was immense on everyone who was present. Make no mistake about it. This was a worship service and blasphemy of the highest order. And you know, we are not so far removed from this kind of blasphemy in our own culture, even in the name of Christianity. Indeed, there are churches filled with respectable citizens, highly educated, gifted, and wealthy, and well-connected, and yet they bow down every week to a version of Christianity that is foreign to Scripture, a version that counts the culture's word as more authoritative than God's word, thus moving them to bow down and worship a golden image of the culture's making rather than the one true and living God. And this is the great testing taking place right now in our culture, dear ones. The pressure to bow down to the idols of the world or to stand for Christ and to give Him the glory alone. And let there be no mistake about it. Just as King Nebuchadnezzar made demands upon his people to worship this idol, so our ungodly culture makes demands upon us. In small ways and in big ways, to turn from Christ and to give our hearts to counterfeit gods. Are you, dear Christian, feeling the pressure? Are you feeling the pressure? Do you feel the pressure of our culture to bow down to its idols created by critical theorists, politicians, professional athletes, actors? Musicians, cable news anchors, civil rights activists. How are you responding to this pressure to believe their lies? Only by actively abiding in Christ by faith and by drawing from his truth and grace will we overcome the great pressures to live according to the values of this world and to worship the culture's pantheon of false gods. So, everything was set. The 90-foot statue complete, the officials gathered, the king on his throne, the musicians with instruments tuned and ready to play. As the music begins, the great crowd prostrates themselves before the image Everyone pays homage to Nebuchadnezzar's golden monstrosity. Or was it everyone? Was it everyone? Look with me at verses 8 through 12. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of these instruments would fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, so they had a high position, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Everyone bowed down and worshipped, except these three brave men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There may have been others. The story is focused on these three, but likely only these three. If Daniel was there, he would have stood as well. We don't know the details. We know that this is the focus, these three men. And a complaint was made to the king. Just imagine it. Just imagine it. This entire massive crowd before this great golden image and the great orchestra playing bow down, and there are three young men standing, holding their heads high, glorifying the blessed, true, and living God. What a picture. They're unwilling to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's false god. What do we learn here about standing for what is right? At least three things. Number one, standing firm in our convictions may mean standing alone. And at times it may mean standing just with a few. If you want to be a disciple, you need to be willing to be ostracized and to stand alone for the sake of Christ. This is more true now than ever in our current cultural moment. Young people, young people here this morning, you must know that there will be a cost to your walk with God. But will you, like these three young men, stand up and say no to the lies? There will be a cost. You will lose friendships. You will lose popularity. There will be those who will think that you are crazy. But the question is, to whom are we most loyal? To the value systems and to the people of this world or to Christ? And of course, it's by our very witness for the truth that we become witnesses of the gospel to those whom we reach out to in love and compassion. Secondly, strong Christian friendships will help you to stand firm. We need each other. We need the fellowship of godly Christians who are more impressed with the glory of Christ than with the fading glory of this world. We need friends who love God more than the idols of our culture. This is a word especially to young people this morning. It's very important that you establish healthy, godly friendships with those who will help you to stay on the path of righteousness for God's name's sake. And a word to those who are senior saints here uh, this, this morning. It's very important not only that you are praying, praying with all of your heart for the health and strength of the church to persevere, but also encouraging and challenging your own family members, your, your children and your children's children. Some of you have great-grandchildren. What an opportunity you have uh, to invest in them, 
The words that you speak to them and write to them now will have an impact upon them for the rest of their lives. And so take opportunity to be an encouragement and to challenge uh, the young people to walk with God. Thirdly, we must understand that if we're going to stand firm, that the world will not always be pleased with our godly conviction. Don't expect it. Those who live godly lives, Paul writes Timothy, will be persecuted in one way or another. We need to expect it and rejoice that we would be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Daniel's companions bore the brunt of the wicked jealousy of their fellow Babylonian officials. It's apparent from verse 8 that the, the accusation that they made was a malicious one. These officials had it out for the three Hebrew young men. They were likely jealous of their status and their high position within the Babylonian government. They were waiting, just waiting to catch them in disobedience to the king's decree, waiting for them to transgress the royal command. In short, they wanted the three Jews dead, leaving their positions vacant. You thought Washington, D.C. was a swamp. Well... Here we have the swamp of Babylon. These men wanted the three godly young men dead in order to take their positions. This kind of behavior is not hard to conceive of in our own day. As pagan government officials enact draconian laws and infringe upon our convictions and religious freedoms. What happens next is amazing. It's a powerful display of courage in verses 13 through 18. Look there with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that the three young men be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it a true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear uh, the musicians, you need to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good if you do, but if you don't, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is a God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, three of the most wonderful words in scripture, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king was furious. Once again, he explodes in anger over the dis disobedience of his subjects. They were ruining his moment of supreme glory. But he calmed down enough to ask them if they were ready to bow down now. That when the music starts again, are they ready to pay homage to the Babylonian god and to him? And the king reminded them of the stiff penalty for not bowing down. Death from the fiery furnace. And what god, he says, can deliver you out of my hand? Here we see Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He believed that he was more powerful than god. Why? In part because he was the creator of gods, like the one that he had fashioned. And so he saw himself as above gods. Also because his heart was so hard that he would not consider what the true God of Israel did through Daniel's interpretation of the dream just a couple of years before. In fact, 
As mentioned before, he probably did not want to think about it because of the truth that was told him about the limited future of his kingdom and glory as expressed by Daniel's interpretation. But what was the the answer of these young men? No need for a long conversation about this, O king. No need for a long conversation. This is a great display of true faith. Verse 17. It was a belief in the power of God. Our God can deliver us if he so chooses. They believed in the power of God. They believed in the freedom of God to do as he pleases. But if not... You know, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, is based on if you have enough faith, you can manipulate God into giving you what it is that you feel like you want or need. But we see the, the, the antithesis of that here in this text. But if not, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. But if not, the freedom of God to do as he pleases, and then the truth of God. We will not bow down. Here we see a reverence for God and a reverence for true biblical worship. The answer was an easy one because their identity was not in this world. It was in the eternal God who, uh, who and his kingdom, and, and not for their own glory, but for his glory, and not the fading glory of the earthly kingdoms of this world. In other words, they knew to whom they belonged. Their identity was not in the Babylonian uh, culture and their pantheon of deities and in their, their, their nation of, of secular glory and pleasure. No, their identity was in the one true and living God. Their identity was in God's eternal kingdom. John Calvin put it this way in his commentary on this text, quote, They already determined God's glory to be of more consequence than a thousand lives and the gratification of a thousand senses. Again, Calvin says, quote, when this kind of death was placed straight before their eyes, they did not turn aside from the straightforward course, but treated God's glory of greater value than their own life, nay, than a hundred lives. If they had so many to pour forth, and opportunity had been given them, end quote. And finally, Calvin says again, the fear of death was sat before them in vain because they had determined and resolved in their inmost souls not to depart a single inch from the true and lawful worship of God. Dear ones, are we to be any less resolved than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Are we to be any less committed to the worship of God and the disdaining of idolatry? Dear Christian, are you ready to show forth the courage of your conviction this week when the powers of this world and the music of this world command you to bow down and to worship? These are questions that God's people are meant to ask from this passage. But this is not just an adventure story for kids. It's a narrative for fostering greater conviction in the lives of God's redeemed children who are always to consider themselves exiles and pilgrims in a foreign land on our way to glory. This world is not our home. Amen? This world is not our home. Our home is in glory. Our citizenship, Paul writes, is in heaven. 
And aren't we reminded here of Christ's call to discipleship in Luke 9? To deny self, take up our cross, and to follow Christ. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to live with the courage of biblical conviction, willing to sacrifice all if necessary for the sake of the kingdom. And by the way, uh, too often we give overtures of sort of wanting to give our lives but are unwilling to do the little things for the Lord, right? It's kind of like uh, uh, men when you're at home and you tell your wife, I love you so much, I would do anything, I would die for you, honey. And she says, that's great, dear, but could you please take out the garbage? Sometimes we give these great overtures, willing to sacrifice everything, and yet aren't willing to do the small things to serve the Lord. We need to do those small things, those ordinary things, which are a part of the, the Christian life. Those ordinary works which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Every disciple is meant to live with this courage, though, in small things and in great things. Abiding in Christ means that we will value Christ above all, even our own lives. This is the garden where true piety grows. Again, John Calvin writes, quote, Sincere piety does not flourish in our hearts unless our minds are always prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. What happens next? Well, in verses 19 through 27, we read about a mysterious Savior. They, bought, they bound up these three men. They threw them in the fire. The fire is heated seven times hotter than usual. These mighty men, these, these green berets of Babylon that, that, that threw them in were scorched to death because they got too close to the fire. As they were watching, something surprising happened, miraculous. They noticed that there were not just three men in the fiery furnace, but four. And they were unbounded and they were walking around, uninjured. The fourth man was described as looking like a son of the gods. Many of you will know that some speculate that this was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it was. Maybe it was an angel. The point is that God was with them. His presence was with them, and he delivered them from the fires of the king's judgment. They were safe. They were safe, not because of any power of their own. They were helpless to save themselves from this fiery furnace, but because God's powerful intervention and grace saved them, his steadfast love and faithfulness. It was his will to save them and show himself mighty in this moment. It doesn't take a theologian to make the connections with the work of Christ here. Jesus came to save us from the fiery furnace of God's judgment for our sin. It's a judgment that we deserve because we have transgressed God's law and rebelled against God's command. Your assistant pastor read the Ten Commandments earlier. We heard them. And at every point, we are guilty. After every command is read, guilty. Guilty, 
guilty. I have transgressed them all. I have failed to conform to any one of them. And each of us in this room this morning deserves God's wrath, his fiery judgment, and eternal punishment in hell. But God intervened. He intervened by sending his own beloved son, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, becoming man without ceasing to be God, born without original sin to save us who are born with original sin. He lived a life in perfect conformity to the law, even refusing to bow down to Satan to gain all the kingdoms of this world. And then he went into the fiery furnace of hell on the cross at Calvary. He went into the furnace. And he wasn't shielded from the fire. He endured it for you and for me because of our sins. Christ cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured the, the, the pains of hell for our salvation, to purchase our redemption in full, to save us from what our sins deserve. This is the message of Daniel, that Christ saves. And did you notice? These men were not burned at all. Not even the smell of fire was on their clothing. This shows the comprehensiveness of God's salvation. God's mighty wrath will be poured out in the last days. On that great day of consummation when Christ returns, he will pour out his wrath upon the wicked. But by his grace, through God-given faith, because of our union with Christ, forgiven of all of our sins, we will have on a robe of Christ's very righteousness, which will shield us from God's wrath. Christ became a propitiation for us, turning God's wrath away from us and onto himself on Calvary. So we need not fear death. That's what I love about the old hymns. The final verse is typically about approaching that final breath. There is no need for any of us in this room who are united to Christ by faith to fear that passing from this life to the next. For to be in Christ is to be safe. To be in Christ is to be as safe as Christ himself is because we are in union with him and his righteousness is ours. This is that glorious good news that we hear this morning from the book of Daniel. Well, this brings us to the king's response, a self-serving declaration. Look at verse 28 with me. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was hedging his bets. He gives praise without devotion, like many do today. He tries to manipulate God. 
because that's the way it works with idols, but not with the true God. He refers to God as one among many. Among many. He has a complete misunderstanding of God. And thirdly, he does a good work by making a harsh law against any who would speak against Yahweh, and he promoted the men in their positions, and he thinks by doing these good works that he will be safe. Wrong. Wrong, King Nebuchadnezzar. Good works cannot save, even with the best of intentions. Our very intentions are are corrupted by sin. You see, only God's mercy and grace in Christ can save us. The stone that will shatter the kingdoms of this world and be the foundation of his eternal kingdom. Well, as we close, a couple of words of application. Please hear this, dear people of God. God is saving people and gathering together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for true worship. You notice in the text that Nebuchadnezzar had called people from what? Every tribe, tongue, and nation under his rule and brought them in to worship a false god. We are called, every tribe, tongue, and nation, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day we will gather around the throne of Christ together and worship the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. Revelation 7 9 through 12. After this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen we will join this chorus one day in glory secondly and please hear this please hear this when you hear the music of this world. When you hear the seductive, worldly music calling you to embrace the values and the ideologies of this present evil age, do not bow. Do not bow. Show forth the courage, by God's grace, of your convictions. Make sure you are ready for the storm of persecution and temptation because not only is it here, but it is coming in greater force. Abide in Christ. Stay close to your Savior. Abide in His Word. Come to His table. Remember your baptism. Stay on your knees in prayer. Engage in godly fellowship. Reflect often upon your status as an exile in a foreign land and live with the courage of your convictions. Sing with the great hymn writer, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. And may we one day join the heavenly chorus with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
and the Wigtown martyrs, the two Margarets, giving eternal praise to the Lamb who was slain. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we thank you for this marvelous text of Scripture, reminding us who we are and whose we are, and by your grace and strength, by your Spirit, how we are called to live, to bow down to the one true and living God and to abide in Christ, our blessed Savior, in whom we have full pardon of our sins and imputed righteousness that clothes us in your sight, so that we are declared righteous before your throne, no longer condemned, no longer cast off, but brought near by the blood of Christ. But also, Lord, that call to discipleship, that call to stand firm, as did these three young men in Babylon, as did Daniel, as did the Wigtown martyrs, the, the two Margarets, who stood fast, even to the shedding of blood, even to death. Lord, give us this resolve. Give us this conviction. And we pray that we would be your faithful witnesses, not hating our enemies, but loving them. Not being full of bitterness, but full of compassion and love, even as we stand firm for the truth. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, dear saints, let us respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together our song of thanksgiving and the Trinity Psalter hymnal number 422. Number 422, we rest on thee. Please stand as we sing.
according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophet, prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> 